One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving podcast. Right, bit of housekeeping before we get started this week. You will be aware, if you're a regular listener, that you can support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash scuba official. If you don't want to do that, and obviously it's a subscription on there, so you're signing up for a period. Well, not necessarily. Obviously, you can cancel whenever you want, but that's what you're signing up for. It's a service. If you don't want to do that, but you do want to support the show... And I know some of you want to do that because I've received messages to this effect. We now have a function to give us one-off donations. So I'm not going to call it a tip jar, but unfortunately, that's kind of what it is. So if you go to the show notes, you will see a link. You can either do it on PayPal or on Ko-Fi. Maybe it's coffee. I'm not completely sure how you pronounce that. K-O hyphen F-I. So that's a couple of options for you to do that if you feel so inclined And like I said, we have had requests for such a facility. So that facility now exists. You can also go to the new and improved scubaofficial.io. And in the menu there, there is a tab called support, which also contains the links. And like I said, if you wanted to do Patreon, there is bonus stuff that goes up regularly. For example, Singles Club, which returned last week and involved me reviewing the Spotify Global Top 10 So that was fun, or rather probably quite fun to listen to. It wasn't that much fun actually listening to those tracks, but um, it's lighthearted, intended to be lighthearted, and a a bit of light relief for patrons. So if you want to sign up, yeah, patreon.com slash scuba official. There is also a higher tier, which costs 8 quid 50 a month, GBP, or 10 US dollars, which gets you all the music that we release on Hot Flush Recordings and associated labels so that's pretty good value considering we do release quite a lot of stuff including my latest which is called hardcore heaven 2 hardcore heaven 2 yeah that's it hardcore heaven 1 came out earlier this year so yeah head over to patreon.com slash official for more info on that and if you don't want to do that you just want to get the music hotflush.bandcamp.com okay on with the show this week we welcome tom lee tom is the proprietor of local action records which has been going 
since 2010. And actually, speaking of Singles Club, Singles Club was something I originally did as a video for Fact Mag. And Tom is a former editor-in-chief of Fact Magazine. So that's an unexpected collision. He also is a former artist manager for both Mum Dance and I Jordan. So he's a man of many talents and a man well-placed to weigh in on many of the issues that we've been talking about on the show recently. And we do talk about all of those issues in this week's conversation, which is a really, really fun listen, I think. It was a fun conversation to have. And like I said, we dig into some of the deep stuff, some of the juicy stuff, and um, I think you're going to enjoy it. Okay, I've already mentioned Patreon. If you wanted to do that, that'd be nice of you. And also, yeah, leave a tip. No, it's not a tip. Send us a donation if you like our show. That'd be nice of you. Whatever you can afford. And if you can't afford anything, that's also cool. No worries. Leave us a review or a rating wherever you listen to this podcast. That would be nice of you too. We'd very much appreciate that. All right. Oh, actually, follow the Spotify playlist. Link in the show notes. And join us on the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord if you've got anything to say about the show or anything else. All right. Okay. Without further delay, here is Tom Lee. Tom Lee, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Yeah, good, good. I'm actually trying to, I'm trying to figure out, we've never properly met, have we? No, we have conversed over email yeah. quite a few times over the years, but no, never, yeah. never face to face. And I feel like you played, I was trying to remember this this morning, I think you played like a fact party years and years and years back, but I don't think we actually cross paths that's so yeah definitely possible yeah feels overdue yeah absolutely absolutely um so for the uninitiated why don't you just like introduce yourself and give a sort of potted history of your involvement yeah i mean it's quite a potted history at this point i guess like to go back i mean like christ it's like 15 years ago now um i kind of got my start as a i guess i kind of hate the term music journalist because i think a lot of i think I don't know. I'm not sure the term journalism applies to, and I don't even mean that as a negative sense, actually. I just think like journalism as a kind of catch-all um, term to just mean any kind of writing on culture just always feels a little bit off to me. But I guess I got my start as a music writer. Um, I was writing freelance at university in the mid-2000s. Then I interned at Fact Magazine um, in 2008, went there full-time, uh, became editor in 2010. I think it was very end of 2010. And then ducked out of that whole world for reasons we may or may not get into in 2014. Around the same time, well, so in 2010, I started my label, Local Action, which um, it started as a partnership with Fonica Records, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners know is a pretty hallowed record store in Soho in London. Um, and I took it independent of Fonica in 2012. And I've kind of done that ever since. I went full-time into, into sort of record label slash music management uh, in 24, well, end of 2014 when I left Fact. And yeah, I've kind of been just about making that work ever since. There's been points where I've been kind of like doubling label duty with management. Um, but right now I'm actually, I, I sort of took a pledge to not do any more artist management last year because I don't think it was particularly making me happy. Um, and I'm sort of like, you know, 13 years into the label, I'm actually kind of at a point where I can do it full time and just about get by. So, um, yeah, that's kind of where I am right now, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I, I guess our paths first crossed whilst you're at Fact, yeah. um, as, you, as you mentioned. So that's a kind of a meteoric rise, isn't it? So intern to editor in chief in, in two years. Yeah, I think, 
I think it was a lot of like right place, right time. I think I, I joined the magazine at the point where, because yeah, I think, I, God, I think fact started in like 2003, I would guess around then. Um, and it was, you know, like, I'm sure you'd like encountered it in record stores and stuff. It was quite like a low key, humble print magazine. And I think I joined at the exact time. I think there was probably two things sort of collating, which is that, I joined at the exact time they wanted to take themselves more seriously as a website and really build it as a digital platform. Like when I actually joined, the website was just kind of where they reposted the stuff from the print magazine. And then there was like, you know, I think a couple of web only bits, but that was about it. And it was sort of like, I came in at the point where it was like, oh, we should start a mix series. We should start taking, you know, the sort of digital side of what we do a lot more seriously. And I think that that happens at kind of the exact same time as like, UK Funky's happening and, you know, dubstep is morphing into this other thing entirely. And the kind of, I guess, music that had been sort of dubstep and grime and whatever in that era had sort of started to grow. You know, well, I guess it had its own meteoric rise, right? And then Mm -hmm. I guess we were so, we were covering that so closely. And I guess me in particular, I was kind of like already like making friends in that scene. And, you know, that was, that was the stuff that I'd really fallen in love with at university. Like I was, I went to university in Aberdeen which is, is great. I mean, I can't speak for it now. I've not been back in a long time, but it was very much like a house and techno city then. Mm-hmm. And it was a really good, you know, it was kind of where I got my house and techno education. Like, did you ever play that club Snafu when it was around? No, I've actually never been to Aberdeen. I don't, I don't think. Right, okay. I'm, I'm, as, I was, as I was saying that, I was just like, maybe, maybe I have. In the, in yeah, the I think you time, might have I'm, maybe I'm, played like Snafu right. or Tunnels, but... It, it's possible. Maybe Tunnels, yeah, that, that rings a bell. Yeah. Tunnels, I think still, I think Tunnels is still open. Snafu... God knows, I think Snafu shut in the early 2010s. But it was like a maybe 300 at a push capacity club that I think just had a great rep and managed to do a really good job of getting a lot of particularly American touring DJs when they were in the midst of doing bigger UK cities. But like, you know, that's the club where I first saw Theo Parrish play and like Derek May play and Slam and Steve Bug and Weatherall and whatever. Nice. So it's kind of where I got like my house and techno education, but... I guess it was grime and dubstep or the stuff that was, that was kind of morphing into at that point. That was the stuff I like really followed. And I was going down weekends where I wasn't going to like snafu. I was going down to London because you could get an easy jet flight home for like 40 quid. Mm. And I was just going to like border plastic people, the big rinse events at the end, stuff like that. So I was, that was just my shit basically. That was what I was really, really into. And I just, I think just, without any kind of strategy, I was just naturally covering that stuff so enthusiastically and closely at a point where it was starting to like turn into this big, I guess, global industry or, or certain like, certainly like a global, go, global like cultural force of itself. Sure. So I think that's probably why I ended up kind of helming the magazine just because like I was the one really covering the stuff that I guess the magazine became synonymous with. Yeah, the stuff that was perceived as being cool, I guess, at the time, for want of a better term. Yeah. Right? And yeah, I didn't even know what, like, it's funny, I I used to read Fact, and I used to read, like, The Wire a little bit, but, like, I didn't really know about the wider spectrum of stuff until I worked there. Like, I didn't know what, Re- I thought Resident Advisor was just, like, a ticketing website. So I think I maybe came into it with, like, a bit of a naivety to that whole industry mm. that maybe just, I don't know, for whatever reason, it kind of worked at the time. Well, yeah, I mean, RA editorially was uh, was not UK focused in any way, really, before 2010, was it? It was very much a kind of European slash yeah. Australian, American. right? 
Yeah, well, yeah, the guys who started certainly Australian. But I mean, I certainly, I mean, that was one of my major kind of like um, points of departure when I moved to Berlin, just realizing how significant it was in that particular right, yeah, yeah. bit of the music scene, right? Because I was just like, <laughs> what is this, you know, insignificant bullshit? But of course, actually, it was pretty significant. And then, and then clearly, it, yeah, massively, it widened yeah. up loads of time. So, but you were, you were saying that uh, this was a period in which, you know, media is going digital and this is the decline of print media and particularly print media in the in the music press so uh, f- from your perspective was was the shift to digital just a kind of something which was inevitably happening and you were just kind of there and, and it happened or was that something that you kind of saw as well i mean there's, there's obviously sort of nostalgia for you know print journalism and and, and magazines uh, but maybe that's from a you know, a slightly older demographic. Yeah, so, yeah, I think you're probably, I think you're probably right there. Like, I think I'm probably, I mean, I'm 38. So I, I was at university in, what would that have been? Uh, 2005 to 2008. So I'm probably that generation that, I mean, I definitely grew up reading like print magazines, but they weren't an integral part of my childhood. Yeah. In the same way that like the early internet was. Um, so I think it's like, I don't, I don't think it, I ever had this like, you know, vision of let's make this like a digitally focused thing. I think it's just the way stuff was moving. And I think like the two main people, you know, neither of us were editor at that point, but the people writing the majority of like the articles or content or whatever, in fact, were me and Kieran Sande. And like, we're both similar age. So, and we're both, I don't know, I guess we were both just children of the internet. And I remember, mm. I actually remember when we like, made the call to like can the print magazine i remember just the conversation we had was like well what what's the one we can live without and the idea of like canning the website at that point just seemed like commercial and cultural suicide for that so yeah evidently i mean was there any pushback from anyone working there about losing no, it really? not at all it was wow. funny i think it was one of those things where i mean sean bidder who was editor at the time was the one that i think made the call but the minute he said it we were all just like well, that's a shame, but I think we all knew it was going to happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. So just sticking on fact for a moment, as an institution, as it were, how did you see yourselves in relation to, you know, the kind of more well-established dance, you know, press institute, you know, the, the DJ mags and the mix mags and stuff? How did you see yourselves in relation to those uh, industry bodies, as it were? I think, you know what, like, I don't think we were really paying attention to them. Right, yeah. And I, I can't speak for everyone else, but like I don't I don't remember there being a huge awareness in and it was such a small team. It was literally like four of us working out of Fonica's basement. I just don't remember there being like a massive awareness of what like Mix Mag or DJ Mag were doing at that point. Like we definitely were aware of like what accelerator I think we saw like accelerator and like, I guess to a lesser extent, RA, when RA started to sort of like branch out and cover more UK stuff. I guess the early Andrew Rice years, you could call it. I think we saw them as our, yeah, I think we saw them as our contemporaries or like peers much more than like the already established UK magazines. Sure. But I think the thing was like, we were proper like, again, I, I don't want to, I don't want to speak. I especially don't want to, I think I can speak a little bit for Kieran. I don't want to speak for... Sean and Ant, who were the other two people there who were like definitely more older and more experienced in like the world of media than me and Kieran. But like it was prop, like it was basically just amateur hour of us two. We were just like 
pretty fresh out of uni, really into like grime dubstep and I guess like the quote unquote like cooler end of house and techno. And we're just like writing about it really rapidly without genuinely without like much of a plan or strategy at all. And there's definitely stuff I look back on a little bit now and like the odd, it's very rare that I go back and read like my old stuff from that era. But occasionally I'm like, you know, there's stuff you cringe at because we were like, you know, I was 21 when I joined as an intern. Oh yeah, of course. (laughs) Of course. Yeah, (laughs) but like, I genuinely think like probably what made that magazine resonate with a lot of people is it was just quite, it was like a little bit lawless and I don't think it was lawless in like an edgelord like vice way. I think it was just quite lawless in like a very enthusiastic, like almost childish or at least quite innocent, um, I don't know, approach, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it definitely, as I remember it, it felt a little bit different, right? And it felt the, I think um, the similarity with Accelerator, well, well, you mentioned Accelerator kind of makes sense to me in terms of the way I definitely viewed it at the time. And I think there was real difference in the editorial. I mentioned DJ Mag and and Mixmag because I think what has happened over the last 10, 15 years is the editorial of these, of, of the big music sites has really kind of converged oh, 100%. so there's really not a lot of difference in what is covered in, in these things and and i think that i mean i want to ask you a general question about the decline of this stuff overall but i mean i think that's a big part of it and it at that point there was real there were real differences between the the sites which were they had identities of their own i suppose yeah, editorially yeah, I agree. you know and i think like an ecosystem only works i mean look i think it's you know, you could say it's synonymous with something like, I don't know, right? The early dubstep scene. I mean, I know that's going to maybe sound a little bit silly, but why I fell in love with that whole world and actually came into it through like Grime and Garage, but like why I fell in love with all that stuff is like Shackleton was a radically different artist to The Bug, to Code 9, to Burial, to whatever, right? But it's like, it all worked as this one ecosystem with everyone kind of playing their position and complementing each other. And I think that's how that scenes scenes don't work for me anyway like as a listener if it feels monocultural like there should definitely be like shared language in scenes but i think you also need a variety of i don't know let's say people's interpretation of that language and i think i think you're completely right to say that that like the major difference between let's say like our sphere or our adjacent sphere of like music writing in the late 2000s early 2010s was just I don't want to use the word diverse because in many ways it wasn't diverse and that's one of its big, you know, historical shortcomings, but it definitely doesn't feel monocultural like it does now. Well, it's diverse in a different kind of a way, right? Diverse taste. Sure. I mean, it's funny you use the word monocultural because that's exactly how I feel about the way music writing is now. Yeah. I mean, I've, re- I've like, there's a couple of, well, I've read three different books in the last month for this podcast, like with a, with an intention to interview the, um, the authors for the podcast. And they're all written <laughs> in almost exactly the same way, the same pro style. It's like, uh, a, a, a you know, white bloke of about our age, actually, yeah. who is, um, very left of center politically and the analysis is just exactly as you would expect, given those two prior things, right? Yeah, 100%. And, and those people, generally speaking, have come from the music sort of press corps, mm. right? 
And you're, I mean, you're absolutely right to, to point out the lack of um, the, the diversity that you're, that you're referencing, the diversity which is generally referred to when people say diversity. But I have to say, like, even though the, the press is, is better like that now, I think it's almost gone the other way in terms of what's actually the, the content that gets produced, right? And that's, yeah, 100%. 100%. That's, that's not what's supposed to happen when you do the first kind of diversity better. Like you, you want more of that diversity, so there's more diversity of the of the other stuff, if you see what I mean, you know? And it just doesn't seem to have happened. Yeah, and I think like a diversity, a diversity in terms of, you know, whether it's gender, racial backgrounds, whatever, that would have happened anyway because that's the way the world has shifted in, you know, the most positive possible light. That would have happened anyway. But yeah, I mean, I mean, I saw this coming. Like, that's why I left. Like, I, I didn't feel inspired by where that world was going. You know, there's that side of it where it was just like, you know, and I don't mean this as any slight to any artist, but Bortet releases a new album. It's instantly covered by the same six websites, seven websites, whatever, who then roll out identical interviews. And... <laughs> You know, fact was part of that. Like, like the issue of fact getting bigger. Like when you know, when I first started working there, it was four people, and by the time I left, like God knows, I think it was, I think it was about fifteen people full time, and three offices, one in the states, one in Australia, and just with, with that level of scaling up, just comes commercial pressures. This is also, and you know, a, a massive part of this. You know, especially as someone who is kind of on the inside, is like. 2013 to 2016, let's say, is like the peak of first people using traffic figures as a means to sell advertising. And your unique, your unique traffic figures became like everything. That became the way, that became the number or the metric through which you could sell your advertising, through which you could make more money. And the minute you have traffic like at the forefront of your mind, um, and I was like, you know, fact was definitely guilty of this. Um, the minute you have like traffic as at the forefront of your mind, you're going to compromise what you do naturally. And then, you know, that kind of leads into the whole pivot to video thing, which was essentially just like a disaster for digital media across the board based on, you know, statistics that Facebook had pumped up artificially to become, you know, synonymous with the way um you know digital media was publicized and I, it just was just going in a way that just felt i just wasn't into it at all and you know i guess that probably dovetailed with a bit of a natural like seven year itch anyway and i just remember being like i need to kind of get out of this world and i actually read very little articles from like the established music media at this well point. that's understandable because they're yeah. not really worth reading for the, for the most part <laughs> right and i feel bad because you know I, I i think there's i don't think anyone gets into well maybe some people do i don't look, I, I think when you get into a job where your name is on the byline there's always going to be a little bit of ego in the room but i think generally people get into that world for I would, I would like to think selfless reasons and, and good reasons and worthy reasons, but I think the whole machine is just such a shit show at this point that it just forces people to compromise. It, it forces people to compromise in terms of taste, you know, in terms of their morals, and I think also in terms of their ability. Like, I don't think, I don't think the, the infrastructure is there now for a good young writer to like come in and really be given like the time or expertise to 
become the next whoever, right? Simon Reynolds, mm. Chow Ravens, whoever. Like, I just don't think people are given that opportunity to grow at a mix mag or an RA or whatever now. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I mean, as as you were saying that, I was you know, my mind initially you know, immediately goes to well. How how are they going to grow? Where are they going to come from? And it seems like you know people are doing things like Substack and you know basically running their own thing in the same way that musicians, largely speaking, do these days. Yeah. Um. And in some ways, I think there are some positive aspects to that. Um. And it's easy to look back on a sort of supposed golden age, both in writing and in and in music. And I think there's there's um there's dangers in doing that. But but yeah, I mean it's difficult to disagree generally speaking, with what you've just said. I mean, I, I, it's funny because, you know, the digital advertising model kind of destroyed print media across the board, really, Yeah. Um, with very few exceptions. I mean, the New York Times is often given as an exception, but even there, uh, their lunch was eaten and it took them a long time to kind of get it back on an even keel. I mean, I, the kind of flip side to it, I suppose, is that, you know, we've just been saying that like how bad the content is, and I sometimes well, it's easy to it's easy to think well, if the content was better, then maybe they'd get more traffic. But I think that's a it's a bit of a simplistic way of looking at it, isn't it? But I mean, I feel like there is some truth in that, though. You know, I think there is. I think there is. I think it's it's tough to say. Like I say, I feel so far out the game that I. I, you know, I don't think I'd be able to give like a decent read on like what the most read articles are on like Pitchfork on any given day or whatever, but like... Taylor Swift coverage probably. Yeah, but you know what? Like I actually, you know, it's funny. I'm not, I'm not, Pitchfork is not part of my like daily routine at all. But like, I don't know if you've been following like Alphonse Pierre, who's one of their more recent kind of recruits. Like he just writes about regional rap music mostly in like a pretty... And I say this as a compliment, like it reminds me of the sort of news journalism I really like, like in a pretty loose, casual way. Yeah. And there's almost like a bit of an element where you can like, look, he really knows his shit. Like his taste is brilliant. And like, he's clearly, I presume he's young. I get the impression he's super young. And like, when you read his stuff, it feels like there's a little bit of like learning on the job, maybe in the same way that let's say like me and Kieran were learning on the job of fact. But I love reading his stuff because... It's it's really good, well-informed writing and it tips me to music that I wouldn't otherwise be aware of. And, you know, when he wants to go deep, like he did like a really great piece on the last Travis Scott album and essentially why it's just like, just calls it out for just being this like hollow capital E event album with like zero substance and just does it with like so much knowledge and potency, uh, a target that, you know, I frankly think deserves it. And I did notice that Pitchfork have been like reposting that piece and his stuff in general, like constantly, like it's always on the front page, even stuff that is a couple months old. So people must be reading it. And I do think, I think this is a weird kind of fallacy of the internet age a little bit where, you know, look with the internet, right? You're, and this is my eternal bugbear. With the internet, you're promised this kind of, this kind of thing with infinite possibilities, right? Like when you look at what the actual possibilities are for culture writing on the internet, mm -hmm. they are vast and it's completely perverse that, it, it's, it's completely perverse that 99% of it is reduced to either 280 character tweets or just, you know, writing that's been edited to within an inch of its life and done with 
an obstructive word count. That 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 it, that exactly is what I don't understand, right? Because a lot of the most popular content generally on the internet is actually long form stuff. I mean, not just writing. I mean, yeah, right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's three hour podcasts, right? Joe Budden's podcast is, you know, I don't really listen to it. It's insanely popular. Yeah. Every episode is like three hours. People have the time to consume this stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I feel like there is, um, it's maybe a failure of imagination editorially, you know? I think so. I think so. I think there's, I think there's a failure of imagination. And I think, I, I think what you say about like, um, digital advertising gutting the print landscape is obviously completely true, but it also just sold a pack of lies to the the digital mm. media landscape that the whole thing is struggling to um, struggling to recover from. But I think also struggling to still struggling to take a stand against, even though so much of it has been kind of proved fake. I mean, look at Vice's pivot to video, right? Like it arguably killed the most influential media platform in the western world yeah yeah tell, tell me more about that I don't, I don't really know too much about the details of that what, what happened there exactly i mean i'm not i'm not so much of an expert because it was it was on it was kind of on my way out like i'd, I'd kind of checked out for about a year before i actually left mm. that world and the pivot to video thing was happening super heavily and i mean i, I can only really speak about it from a fact perspective but Facebook had become like the motorway at that point, right? Like everyone was just consuming everything on Facebook. And Facebook, hit, and I think Facebook were even fined like billions for this in retrospect, um, you know, retrospectively. Facebook were set, and I, people should read, you know, actually read up on this because this is, this is the crib notes version and I'm definitely misremembering stuff. Yeah, yeah, sure. But essentially Facebook were artificially pumping up um, the views that, platforms and people in general, I think, were getting posting video to Facebook. So essentially it was like internal click farm type stuff. But if you're looking at it from the perspective of say, like, I don't know, like I can tell you what happened to fact, which is that we started posting slightly more pithy, fun, you know, like set interesting stuff at times on Facebook, you know, and it would be like a vintage like Bjork clip or whatever, right? And suddenly it would just get millions and millions of views. And, you know, that's obviously numbers you see from an editorial perspective and think, well, this is clearly where our audience is moving. We need to focus on that. Again, you think about it from an, adver an advertiser's perspective, suddenly you can go to like X advertising agency and being like, we're clocking up 20 million views a month on our Facebook. And it becomes the metric. It became the metric really through which a lot of publications were judged and what a lot of publications were sold on. And then, like I say, like retrospectively, it turned out that Facebook were artificially pumping up these numbers just to drive people to Facebook video. <laughs> and it's crazy. It, it's, it's, it's crazy in retrospect. And, and Vice, I mean, Vice really bought the whole thing when it came to pivot to video to the point where, you know, they launched Vice TV. And Vice TV actually did like a lot of they did, really amazing yeah. stuff. From, like, they made some great films. Yeah, do you remember when they, they were on the ground in like Kiev when yeah. there were like snipers on the town square and no mainstream news was, was going to go cover it? They were doing pretty groundbreaking stuff. Yeah, I stuff. remember the, they made a documentary about Swedish black metal, which I thought was just awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it was so good. I mean, they they they... they they made a documentary with the with the Islamic State. Yeah, right. Like, oh, of course they did. Yeah, that. Yeah, it, it was really some of good. the stuff they did was incredible. Yeah. But you know, they they moved their whole business model towards video and TV, and I I, I can't speak for their share price. I mean, I know it, it's plummeted over the years, and I believe Shane Smith's been trying to sell it for a long time. But 
you know, they went from this like Murdoch-backed monolith to like as someone who worked in the, the industry. Like most people I know that worked at Vice were working for very little pay just because Vice was such a, you know, a, 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 a prestigious thing to have on their CV. And some of them proved to be right. Some of them went on and then got, you know, used that Vice cloud to get massively well-paid jobs at Nike or whatever. But like a lot of people did a lot of, gave a lot of their lives to Vice for not a lot of pay. And, um, you know, kind of were cheated. Sure. And there was definitely a point in, you know, let's say, I don't know, 2012-ish, where like, I think most people working in music media, certainly people like my kind of age then that didn't have like, you know, families to feed or whatever, like they'd have jumped at a job on Vice, even if it meant a 10K pay cut. It had that level of like, just aura in the industry. And it went within like two to right, three years. They're basically bankrupt at this point, aren't they? I think so. It also, you know, had a pretty colossal Me Too movement, which I think was, sorry, Me Too moment, which I think was pretty overdue from what I understand of the culture there. Um, I mean, my, yeah, my partner worked at Vice and I've, I've had some intel on that side. But okay. um, yeah, I mean, they just, it, it, they just went from 100 to zero in the space of three years. And I think a lot of, you know, that, that period, particularly, I think the mid-2010s was pretty crushing for digital media in a lot of ways. Right. And then, okay, so just to tie this up, so that, in your opinion, was largely down to Facebook or the big big tech kind of efforts to... I mean, the, yeah, the, the piv- I think the pivot to video, I think a lot of this comes down to advertisers and, and that culture of... of you know, maybe maybe kind of a short-term culture where a lot of these magazines only had digital advertising space to stay alive. People weren't really, or, you know, Fact had a pretty small ad team compared to a lot of people, but I don't think people were really looking beyond just digital ads for their income at that point. And the, the, other, the other important thing, I think, about the traffic stuff, you know, you would sell, you would sell your brand to advertisers based on your traffic numbers. And then everyone realised in the course of about a year how easy it was to artificially inflate those numbers. I mean, I think like Complex semi-infamously got caught using click farms, and you know everyone was selling themselves on their on their traffic. And then within a year, everyone realised you could just fake that. <laughs> so, so what are you selling, right? Like, what are you then selling at that point to advertisers? Yeah, you're selling eyes that they can't trust. Yeah, <clears throat> not great. I guess a general observation would be that, and I, I say this to, I think this is true for musicians, I think it's true for anyone who's doing anything quote-unquote creatively these days, is that you can't rely on one revenue stream. You just can't. You have no, to have no, a 100%. business model which is a lot more flexible than that. And, you know, I think yeah. something like that sort of print media is coming out of a, a century or more of a very fixed business model which didn't have to change. And things just change quickly now, don't they? Yeah. Basically. Yeah. And like you say, I think, you know, musicians found that out massively during the pandemic. Yeah, for sure. And it's funny, it made made me refocus on running a label because I was, you know, making the majority of my income then on on music management. And then the pandemic happened and I lost all my my income. And through luck rather than design, I'd obviously been running the label for whatever it was at that point, like nine years, 10 years. And I was like, oh, well, at least I have this income stream. But I'd never really dipped into before it was you know it would just go back into releases but it was like okay i now at least have the ability to scale back a little bit and pay my rent 
which I probably wouldn't have had if I was a touring musician at that point. Yeah, totally, totally. So yeah, let's talk about the label. As you mentioned, it started uh, sort of adjacent to Fonica back in 2010. So as you were, you mentioned that you were kind of a DIY journalist at that point. So presumably the label was equally DIY. Well, it, it, yeah, I mean, it, it was, but it's funny because it started off a lot more professionally than it then became because I didn't realise how lucky I... I didn't, well, I didn't realise how lucky I was partnering with Fonica on it because I just, I just didn't know any of that stuff worked. I was just... I was, well, it sort of came from... Um, so it was 2009, I think, when I actually like, had the conversation, or end of 2009, I think, when I had the conversation with Fonica about starting it. And a big part of it was... So I don't know if you know this, but Facts Office... I think still is, I don't know, is off Carnaby Street. Um, but for ages, it didn't have its own entrance and we had to go through Fonica to get to work. Um, and the two buildings are connected. So every morning, every lunchtime, every afternoon, uh, sorry, every evening, I was going through Fonica and like, as you can imagine, spending like way more money than I could afford on records as, as you're always going to do if you're just in that, you know, proximity to that kind of space. It was like, you know, becoming pally with people at the store. It's funny, I was, I was sort of like, my house and techno knowledge at that point was so sort of amateur compared to what it is now. So I was like, you know, hanging out with people like Heidi and Hector who worked at Fonica. I didn't even really know they were big DJs. I just knew they DJed and I asked them what, what cool techno records were out that week or whatever. But um, yeah, I was, it was when UK Funky was happening really and, and Simon Rigg, who runs the store um, and kind of gave me the opportunity with the label, he... He was just like, look, like we keep getting requests for this stuff. It's not really my bag. You seem to be into it. Like, what records should we be buying in? So I was kind of advising him on what UK funky they should have been stocking at Fonica, basically. And I was buying all the records at Uptown anyway, which was like two minutes there. So two minutes away from Fonica, so it was pretty easy. And then I guess that, you know, that era, the whole like, quote unquote, UK bass thing or whatever is, is kind of growing. And Simon really wanted to start a label based on that kind of music and just gave me the opportunity to run it. Um, but I didn't, all I did the first, I think it was the first six releases, the first two years, I basically just signed the music. All the, all the creative was me, but like Bonica sorted out a distro deal with Rubber Dub. Like, you know, they had word and sound doing our promo, stuff like that. And I didn't really understand what, and they were paying for everything, most crucially. So I, I didn't really understand what a privileged position that was. And then I think like after a couple of years, I was like, this is great, but I want, I just wanted full agency with it really. So I said to Simon, like, I want to, I want to just do this thing myself. And he was all good. He was like, yeah, hundred um, percent. And then it, I had the next record already signed. And then I was like, oh God, I now need to figure out how to actually release a record. <laughs> so yeah. I kind of, yeah, it started off professional and then I had to kind of go DIY like two years in and sort of learn on the job how to actually, because this is obviously final days as well, so it's like how to go get records pressed. Da, da, da. So yeah, it kind of got more DIY two years in, but I thought, I like to think it's still DIY to be honest. Like, there's actually, there's been periods where I've kind of, you know, we've had certain records. I don't know, you might have had a similar thing with Hot Flush. Like we've had certain runs of records that have done really, really well. And suddenly there's a lot more money coming in and your bottom line's up through, you know, your back catalogue. And I've had these moments, I'm like, right, this is probably the time to try and like maybe hire some staff, kind of expand the infrastructure of what we do, 
start a publishing arm, whatever, all that stuff. And actually, like, I think every time I've had those impulses, they've made me A, enjoy it less and B, taken me away from the reason I do it in the first place. And I've, I've, I've had a couple of those periods and I've, I've actually then very consciously tried to make it more DIY and kind of like pair back that side of it. I think I've basically found a scale that I'm happy operating at and I don't have a massive desire to, to go beyond that actually at this point. Mm. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry. No, I was just, it's actually, it's funny. Something that really stuck with me is, is something that Jack Green wants. I can't even remember if it's a conversation I was having with Phil or, or, or it might have even been something he tweeted, but he was talking about it in terms of like a, a live ticket perspective, which I think, you know, we can all sympathize with where we're in this situation, maybe a little less now, it was a couple of years ago, but it felt like a couple of years ago, certainly like if you are a new touring act, the focus is on, you know, um, hard ticket headline shows and scaling those up at every opportunity. And you scale up, you know, you, you scale up your perceived ticket value every six months and then your agent, you know, sells that to festivals and whatever. And I get the virtues of it, but I remember Phil actually talking about the fact that he'd kind of done that and realised he'd reached playing a scale of venues that he didn't enjoy. Mm. And actually, like, a big thing was him realising that, like, there's a certain capacity he can sell that he's comfortable at and he now doesn't really feel the need to scale up beyond that because it's the spot where he's happy and comfortable and he feels like it's, you know, the best kind of size venues for his art to be received and I feel like I've that's always really stuck with me actually and I feel like I'm at a similar place now where I feel like we operate on I guess a high level for a DIY singles focused dance label and I'm happy with that and it pays my bills and I you know I feel extremely privileged it does but I don't have a crushing desire to get any less DIY than I am yeah Long-winded answer. I appreciate it. No, but, no, um, absolutely. Um, and actually, it sounds familiar to me, actually. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I think quite a few of us who've run labels that have had, like, like you've had with Hot Flush, those kind of breakthrough moments for certain artists and records. I think a lot of people end up going back to that space where they just feel comfortable. Yeah, totally. I mean, look, there are certain certain labels and certain A&R people, actually, uh, who want hits to the detriment of everything else, basically. Yeah, massively. And, and that's fine. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But you know, there are other ways of doing it, right? Yeah, 100%. And I'm... Yeah, sorry, and, go on, go on. No, I was saying, you probably know as much as me. Like, you can never predict what's going to be a hit. No, no. I'm sure we've both had releases <laughs> totally. we've signed and we're like, this is going to fly. This is going to absolutely fly. And yeah, it probably does all right. But it's always the stuff you... Or it's often the stuff you expect least that really takes off. It is absolutely, and you know there are a, you know there's a really really small number of people in the music industry who are able to predict things more accurately than that. But I mean, it's a very very small number. Yeah. Um, and I think when you're ch- if you're not one of those people and you spend your time time trying to chase it, as I have done sometimes. It's soul-destroying. Oh, yeah, same. It really takes all the fun out of it and you end up just hating what you're doing, right? I mean, that's my experience. Same. Yeah, 100%. We really had it um, when, we, when we first released the first Dawn Richard album we did, which was at that point like by far the biggest record we'd done. 
I just had the amount of like random managers cold calling me, trying to like pitch me their new electronic R&B singer <laughs> or whatever. And like some of the music was great. And I remember like having a bunch of these conversations and kind of being like, oh, is this our direction now? Or we, we go into like more of like, you know, maybe it's a bit of a glib comparison, but like a Young Turks type space or whatever. Mm. And then I just realized, like, I was just hating myself for having that mindset. And yeah, I, I mean, like you say, I think there are people that can do that. And I think there are people that can thrive um, with that kind of attitude, but I'm not, I'm not really one of them. I don't find it. For- hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So we, we mentioned business models for artists and you know i think when you're running a small label i think it's um maybe not inevitable but it's certainly something that i've experienced and i think you have too like getting involved with the careers of aspiring well, new artists and aspiring artists mm. so tell me a bit about how um over the course of running the label for yeah 13 years how that's changed in your approach and maybe the um the effectiveness of certain approaches in, you know, artists making a living from this stuff? Yeah, that's a good question, actually. I think, um, I guess for the first five years or so of the label, I was never really interested in anything beyond just putting out cool records. Um, and then I think maybe it was, it was probably working with Dawn, actually, because, you know, obviously to release a Dawn Rashad album is a much more you know, involved process than releasing a whatever 12 inch. And, you know, it, there was a lot of uncharted territory for us in that we had to get like funding for our distro. And, you know, we, we delved in stuff like college radio plugging in America and just, just things I'd never done before. And it ends up being a campaign that like, I was working on pretty solidly for about a year. Um, and it was super, super successful. Um, but, you know, it was, it was a lot of work. And I think at that time, you know, one of my best friends, Andy Musgrave, who like manages AJ Tracy, he was getting into management at that point and kind of, I had him and a few other friends who were doing it and they were like, look, this is where you can actually have, because I've always been, I've always been invested in the artists I work with doing well. Like I've always been available to help out outside of just releasing their records, but I've also always been comfortable with that being my part in the chain. Like I never really had a crushing desire to like, manage people or whatever at that point and then I guess I guess around that time I was like okay maybe there is um you know a way we can help more and and you know like as a label there's only so much you can do and there's also only so much you're paid to do right like if you're you know you're only taking 50% on x amount of records unless you're in a well I know 
certain labels have different deal structures, but that's ours. And, um, you know, you're only paid to do so much, right? But then I think there was a period, like I say, like mid, mid-2010s mid when I first started working with Dora, and I was like, okay, maybe, maybe the future here is becoming more of like a, you know, more of like a, an involved service. Mm. And, you know, like we, we launched like a management arm and I was managing like Mum Dance for years. I was managing Jams, who's like a UK rapper who just, I think you might have seen, just did that project with Elijah. Um, and I was managing like iJordan for the first three years of their career. And that stuff was, that stuff was really rewarding. And I think I found that side of, to go back to what you're saying specifically, I think helping an artist build a sustainable business beyond just, you know, gigging and touring was like, you know, I felt like at that point I had the expertise to help do that. And that, that was stuff I did find rewarding. It's funny, like I've never really looked unless I've had to, I, I don't really try and look at the finances too much of local action because I feel like it takes me away from why I do it. Yeah. I, I know exactly how that feels. Yeah. Still yeah. Know. yeah. No, exactly. And some, like, sometimes you just really believe in a record and you, you just have to square that with yourself that I really believe in this record and I want to do like a really good job and invest in it. And if that doesn't make the money back, I'm in peace with that. But, you know, I've actually found that side of it really rewarding working with, you know, particularly young artists, you know, when I, was, I worked with Jordan from their first record, you know, like I, I found that side of it. Okay, let's help someone build a sustainable business. Let's get in early with their finances, get stuff organized, get their bottom line up. I actually found that stuff quite, quite rewarding because you're, you know, you're, you know, you're impacting someone's life in a positive way. Sure. Um, but I also found it like draining. I mean, artist management, God bless people who can do it. But I mean, I just found the demands of that job. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, brutal, a, absolutely brutal. Good artist manager works unbelievably hard really like and they really do earn their money yeah. i mean there's not many good ones in fairness but like if the the, the good there's ones not. are really committed to the cause and they really add unbelievable value yeah and i mean the crazy thing is you it's almost like there's not a middle ground right and this is this is what i found really tricky is like when you when you start managing someone and they are a new artist and whatever you can be everything because that artist probably only has two gigs a month so you can be the person that looks over contracts. You can be the tour manager where needed. You can, you can do all this stuff, right? If they want to self-release, you can be the label. And then if you get to an artist that's making, you know, if you reach the point where an artist is making like, I don't know, let's say 500 grand a year, you can pay an entire team. You can have, you know, a TM and, you know, a day-to-day and whatever. But the middle area where your artist is gigging, you know, seven, eight times a month, has a ton of stuff going on, but isn't making the sort of silly money where you can be like, okay, we're just going to hire someone full-time here. Mm. We're just going to hire you like a full-time or, you know, one day a week, whatever, like finance manager. That's where it gets tricky because that's where you don't have enough money to bring in enough support, but there is too much going on for you to do it on your own. And it's obviously very, very hard to make a living managing one artist. You know, that artist earns... That always turns 100k a year, you earn 20 in theory, right? So to earn a living wage in London, and, you know, it was slightly different with me because I could top up my account with local action stuff, whatever, and I, I split my salary between the two. But, you know, to, to earn a living wage in London, you need to be managing two artists making 100k a year. Yep. Or three artists managing 75k a year or whatever. And that's, 
not easy. There aren't many artists who earn that money, basically. No, no, 100%. And, you know, it's something that art... I mean, Elijah makes his point really well, you know, as he often does with stuff, but I think that's something that it's really important for artists to realise, and a lot of artists overlook that. If you're earning 100k a year, your manager is still not earning a living wage in most cities. You know, and it's like, it's important for artists to realise, and I think a lot of artists don't, and I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't say that to like blame them. I just think it's a thing where there's like a lack of transparency and lack of education on it. It's like a manager can't be, a manager can't give you 100% until you are earning enough for them to live off that commission, right? It just doesn't work. Yeah, totally. So where does, and this this is a question I often ask myself in this conversation about, you know, um, revenue streams and business models for artists and, the declining relative share of recording music in those business models. Like, where does the label fit in? Good question. In, in terms of in terms of an artist's revenue, or? yeah. I mean, where, where do they? What role do they play? I mean, you've been you've been talking about your own yeah, yeah. personal involvement in artists' careers, and I do similar thing, and it's really above and beyond what needs to be done mm. by a label. But where, like, what is the role, I suppose, of a label? Yeah, it's tough. I know you're saying, but I think, I think I'd push back slightly on what needs to be done because I think we're at this point now, which I think is, is super healthy, where artists can just release stuff on, you know, I know artists, especially in the States, like artists who just pay their rent off Bandcamp every month. And I think the old role of the label that's just, you know, you distribute, promote, the music. Yeah, I suppose I meant I suppose I meant what sort of contractually needs to be done, you know, rather than Right, yeah, yeah. No, that's totally fair. Yeah, yeah. I think I think the role does need to shift a little bit. And I think there probably is a well, I think there definitely is a obligation now for a record label, particularly a record label of like, you know, a local action hot flush type size. If you're you know, if you're like a beggars group label or whatever, just the ability to run that record through the beggars machine, you know, is is worth a lot, right? But like, if you're running like an independent label of like our kind of size, I think there is, I think there is an obligation to offer something more. And you know, that that can be various things, right? That can be like, that can be as simple as the context or, or like providing that record or that artist a context where they feel at home. Like, I think that's something that we get so bogged down in like the business side of of music conversations at the moment. And I think that's probably overdue, generally speaking. But I think, a label does provide like can provide really interesting and like important context for an artist right like i think you know someone like a lorraine james like that early hyperdub not just cosign but putting what she does in like the lineage of what hyperdub does uh i think is important and i think it's easy to underestimate that or or you know it can be like having someone like you who's released a ton of like really successful dance records having you know that input into a record i've actually got a lot recently i've got a lot more confident with being able to like input creatively in records and you know having that feeling of like well i have been doing this almost 15 years now like i i kind of know what i'm talking about <laughs> yeah yeah and and you know i think especially with some artists where i've worked from them both artists i've worked from like where they're early and still feeling out their sound but i think also artists that have been like single you know singles artists and and it comes to like album time I found myself working like really closely with them just on the music and kind of having that confidence to be like well look we've we've 
released like you know dance music records at the Billboard chart. Like we we kind of know how to maximize what you're doing with this artistic, you know, this this album length statement. And I'd never I'd never enforce my taste over theirs. Like the artist's always going to have the final say. But I think bringing that expertise is important. And I think just just putting that work in and you know I like going above and beyond. I I I enjoy it and I get I get fulfillment out of it. That said, something I've I've I really made a pledge about four years ago to never release records by artists that I haven't at least had like a couple of phone conversations with. Right. Um I think I really started to find that kind of like one and done, someone pitches you some demos, or, or you know, even worse, a manager pitches you some demos, and they're good and you sign them and the record does right and the relationship never develops beyond that, that's always left like a bit of a bad taste in my mouth. Or at least I've never found it fulfilling. So that's my kind of hard rule now. And I think, I think that does speak to what a label can offer is like, I want to provide, like, I, want, I want there to be a relationship between that artist and local action. I want that artist to be like proud to have local action in their bio and the, the logo on a record, you know. I want them, and I want them to feel supported by us and feel like part of what we do. And that is really important to me. And, it, it, and I find it fulfilling as well. So I think, I think in terms of your, your question of what a label can provide, I think, I think that's an unsung part of it. Yeah. And I think, you, you know, and I think, I think more than ever, you do have to earn your 50% or whatever that percentage is, you know? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly still believe that, you know, a good label can be absolutely worth that 50%, you know? And Massive. 100%. 100%. It's like a good manager, you know. There's lots. Of, there's lots of bad labels who who add no value. Like this, like there are lots of bad managers who add no value. But there are very, very good ones who mm-hmm. really, you know, are the secret sauce almost for some artists. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I do feel like there's, there was, you know, there was a lot of dialogue. I think, especially around, the, you know, in the pandemic and around the Bandcamp Friday stuff, which I, I totally understood. Where there was, I think there was like a very prevalent like school of thought. That was like, you can do everything at this point. You can master your own records. You can do your own artwork. You can distribute them on Bandcamp. And like, cool, great. And I think artists having that option is probably the most positive thing that's happened in electronic music in like the last 20 years, arguably. Um, but I, I know from, from having done this for a long time, like all the most successful stuff we've had or, or certainly 99% of the most successful records we've released have been a product of collaboration you know between me and that artist and, and other people whether it's creative whether it's art workers whatever whether it's remixes whether it's radio pluggers or you know sometimes whether it's their manager um, and it's been those situations where everyone is pulling in the same direction in a really harmonious way and you can do everything yourself but I I think artists that do everything themselves and get the best results are very, very few and far between. Far and few between. Few and far between. Yeah, as well, I, I mean, this have. is the um, the difference between independent music and interdependent music, as postulated by right, our yeah. friend Matt Dryhurst, who has been on the show. So you mentioned Bandcamp a couple of times. Um, it recently it was sold again, wasn't it? Last week, yeah, I believe. I know. What do you? I mean, do you think it's almost become a single point of failure in the ecosystem? It's really tough because this is a bit of a a do as I say, not as I do situation. I've had this lingering doubt, like even, and yeah, I think for context, it's worth, 
it's it's worth saying that like D to C financially was like an absolute game changer. Mm. What we did, I think we came, you know, because like local action comes out twenty ten, so it's like we just just about caught like the last ashes on the cigar of like vinyl yep. being, you know, a a whatever like a, a a feasible way to to make a profit on a record. And that that kind of fell out the window like two and a half, let's say three years into what we we're doing. And that period, let's say roughly 2013 to 2014, where people had pretty much stopped downloading music, streaming hadn't kicked in properly yet, and our vinyl sales had halved. That was brutal. Like financially, that was absolutely brutal. And, and it was it was a hard one to square because we'd be putting records on you know, uploading something to SoundCloud, it would get 100,000 plays and it would make 40 quid. And it was a really hard thing to square. And obviously streaming changed that massively. But even before streaming really kicked in, I mean, we were quite early on the D2C thing. Um, you know, we really focused on that in like early 2014. And um, financially, it was just a game changer for us. I mean, it was actually pretty bank account. We did it, we were using Big Cartel first. And so I became, you know, very aware of, how important that can be. And I think even now, if I was to dip into our finances, I think I think our turnover or the vast, vast majority is, of it is a pretty even freeway split between Apple, Spotify, and D2C. Right. That said, I've always had that nagging doubt with Bandcamp and Bandcamp's kind of monopoly on it that like, I mean, we've all seen it, right? Anytime you are reliant on one platform, be either your income or your communication with your fans. Mm which, you know, we've seen with Facebook. We're probably at the moment seeing with Instagram and Twitter. Um, and, you know, we saw with SoundCloud, right? And the minute you're too reliant on like a small handful of platforms, it's dangerous. And I've actually been preaching this to people for years that like you should go build your own websites and have your own, own online stores. But we haven't done this yet, so. Yeah, it's it's not easy. It's, a, it's an undertaking. To it's do not that. easy. It's really... It's really hard. It's really hard to do and it's really hard to maintain and, and Bandcamp makes the whole process so easy. But I don't know, I, I haven't really looked into the takeover at all um, beyond like the basic headlines. Mm. But it's, yeah, it, it worries me. But, you know, I think we all should have been worried about this a long time ago. Yeah. I think this might also be a Dryhurst quote, but there was something about it being, Bandcamp being a band-aid and not a solution. Mm. And I think that's pretty accurate yeah totally i mean i think yeah what you're saying about over-reliance on prevalent corporate entities let's call them what they are yeah is yeah it's, it's a big risk you know if you're sketching out your you know company risk register i mean if you're 30 percent of your sales are coming from bank app, that's got to be a big flashing red light hasn't it really oh 100 percent. yeah well you know and, and like i say 99 of them are coming from free platforms which yeah equally isn't too healthy. I mean, I know, I'm not going to name names, but I know speaking to a friend who's, who's quite high up at one of the, you know, major, major indies. Um, he said that when Spotify changed, I can't remember the exact details where they did it, but I know they changed their homepage layout, um, I think around October last year, maybe. So I think it was end of last year. And he said their entire catalog sales dropped 2%. Right. Because of a Spotify homepage change. I mean, that is you know doesn't bode well does it what do you think about streaming generally i mean you you mentioned that um it had a positive impact on your your revenues 
generally, but obviously yeah, yeah. Um, it's a well, it's a much maligned model anyway. So, so what's your what are your yeah, general? Yeah, it's a tough one. I, it's yeah. I I find it a really hard one. I I don't you know I think about it all the time. Obviously, it's it's pretty much my income, and I I'm never quite sure where I land because I think I understand. I completely understand. Um, you know, people's issues with the model. And I think especially when it comes to like, you know, Daniel Eck investing in like arms companies or whatever, I absolutely understand anyone who's like, well, that's my line crossed and I don't want to work with this company. I completely understand that. But that is a can of worms though, isn't it really? If you <laughs> Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is, right. Because you can apply that to how many places, right? It, it's almost anything. <laughs> yeah. If you dig too deep into where your money is going and the companies you are using there's only you know yeah there's only it's only going one way right but um i guess i think it's tough because i just think piracy already happened right like the value of music declined more rapidly than it ever has when piracy happened and it's a it's a tough one to square because i think uh you know i i think philosophically i'm pro piracy at that level. Yeah, I was just I was just going to say, right? I was just going to say cuz that that statement in itself is a bit of a kind of rude awakening I think for the kind of utopian mentality of the kind of late 90s early 2000s, right? It's just 100%. It really is. Like, you know, the 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 opening up of the entire catalog of music to be available or the, the entire history of music to be available to pretty much anyone is, you know, one of the greatest democratizing, you know, um developments in culture in the last 50 years um and I, like i say I, i'm pro it i i think i'm generally pro piracy but i think it's it, it yeah you say it's hard to be too utopian about it when so how does that let me let me let me just ask you to clarify that slightly so pro piracy do you mean then that you are anti uh sort of copyright anti intellectual property rights as private property i think i'm not philosophically but i am as a realist because the issue with that stuff is that all those rights are owned well they're all owned by you know in music certainly the vast vast majority are owned by free companies Mm. um they are the ownership of those companies due to largely exploitative contracts that were signed you know pre-piracy let alone pre-streaming and i as someone who has tried to clear like countless samples in their life and sometimes been successful and other times become acutely aware of what a flawed process it is and where all the power lies in this stuff. Yeah, I think that's it. I mean, it, it, it's something that I really struggle to articulate because I think it's a really, really thorny one. But I'm certainly anti-copyright law in the way it is being applied now and in the way it has largely been applied in the last whatever 70 mm. years okay um i think if it had been, you know if it had been done more democratically more fairly or you know even if even if new technology was utilized to democratize the process right like you know when all the blockchain conversations were happening that was my number one thought well like you could re well it would never happen because there's too many people that have vested financial interest in it but like there is the potential here to use this technology to move sampling into some sort of equity system you know i think there's there's ways that this stuff could be changed and made fairer but the power lies with you know 
three major labels and some major publishers and it's not in their interest to do that. So sure. Yeah, it's a really, it's, it's one I struggle with a lot, my views on piracy and copyright, because I think, I think there's a holistic view and then there's a realistic view. And I think I probably lie somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I mean, and I think the I mean, whole thing is so thorny that it's re- it's very it's. I think it's kind of impossible to take a, 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 a you know a defined view on it either way. So, I mean, yeah, I got a couple of things. Like, first of all, there are three other companies which now seem to be dominating everything. Right, who are right? Equally, sorry, uh, yeah, yeah. The minute I <laughs> yeah, the minute I said that, I was like, actually, it's a it's a situation that's <laughs> becoming even more complicated. Yeah. And then, and then I guess the, the follow up question, um, and I will go back to what you were saying in a sec, but this this should probably be asked now you mentioned new technology so obviously ai is reliant upon um copyright not being enforced to an extent anyway yeah so how do you feel about that as a as a rights holder as much as anything else i don't i don't really fear ai in that sense but just in terms of just in terms of it using you know stuff that you own that you make a living out of how do you feel about that? Yeah, it's a tough. It's a tough one. I, I, I don't think I care. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, do you know what? It's it's funny. It's funny. That's a common answer to that question. I've noticed. Yeah, I mean, I would never ever um, not clear a sample unless you know. I, I obviously know. I know our value. I know what I think we should be paid if someone's going to use our sample. And I would, you know, I'd never do it without the artist's um, approval as well. But I would never. I would never not clear a sample at a fair rate. You know, unless unless it's some neo-Nazi band or whatever, right? Like there's circumstances, but as long as I don't have some kind of moral issue of how it's being used, I would never not clear a sample at a fair rate. And I think in the same way, like if someone used AI to recre- recreate what we'd done, I think I'd probably try and have a conversation with them and be like, look, I think this is a situation where we should do a profit split. And maybe if they're, I don't know, look, I mean, it's all hypothetical, but maybe if their approach that was, well, fuck you, sue me, then I would probably issue a takedown. Um, well, that's the thing, isn't it? Because there isn't really a mechanism to do that because right, this the, is, the legislation yeah. and the regulation hasn't caught up. And we're now in, well, this, yeah, this and we're now in a situation yeah. where, and just going back to the, the digital advertising thing, actually, it's, it's a kind of a similar position now where, you know, there are, where, where big tech is essentially in the process of making a, a grab for this stuff which you know currently exists in a in a legal framework and yeah. and you know regulators are you know going around in circles it seems in their attempts or lack thereof to you know work up a legal framework which is going to fairly compensate people and and so this is the question right so so i mean if, if there was a, a system where you could issue a takedown then yeah absolutely that would be great but i i mean that definitely doesn't exist now but you're right yeah it doesn't it doesn't currently fall under the D, the uh, what's it the mca's remit does it this is the issue i mean i would say with all this stuff as well it's like i'm i obviously try my hardest to stay on top of this stuff as it you know it it has you know potential repercussions for my business and whatever like that said i've certainly in the last few years certainly since the pandemic like kind of had this realization that i'm like i am ultimately doing this because it, i find it fulfilling and fun and rewarding mm. and i wouldn't say i'm like a willing luddite <laughs> in uh okay. in my life but you know like i don't have personal social media like i never have like there's a lot of stuff that i i am quite content to like sit outside of and i haven't really you know beyond like playing around with like 
chat GPT and mid-journey a little bit out of pure curiosity. I've not, I've not really engaged with the AI stuff so much. There's, there's elements of it that I, I have concerns about, but that is more, you know, I'm, I'm very concerned with the idea of like deep faking people and the idea of, you know, the potential for faked evidence and, and stuff like that. When it comes to music, I don't, I don't see a drastic difference really between someone. And yeah, I understand it's different when it's like a vocalist and it's their actual voice, but you know, from like a sense dance music perspective, I've seen people like really get up in arms about videos that are like, you know, someone just entering in, made me some drums in the style of X, swing them like X, whatever. I don't buy that that's that radically different to buying a splice sample pack. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I really don't. And I think good artists will use this stuff creatively and bad artists won't. And I, I, I don't see it as drastically different to sampling in that sense. Yes. Yes, I agree. I agree with that. Totally. I think the um I think the issue is like like I said, where uh where models are trained using, you know, copyright, using uh, using intellectual property. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think that's something which is I mean, I think that there needs to be a regulatory framework around that and there needs to be legislation so people have people can be compensated fairly because at the end of the end of Yeah, no, I do. I do yeah. agree. Okay. Um let me ask you about, I hope this is sort of adjacent. In fact, I actually interrupted you. Can you remember what the sentence was that I interrupted 10, I 10 minutes I ago? <laughs> okay, no, it's fine. Neither can I. Okay, I was going to ask you about... I was going to say, I'm aware, I'm aware those AI and copyright thoughts are very, you know, they're very rambly. But it's, it's stuff that I genuinely don't... I know how I sit. I know where I sit in some regards yeah. to it. But I just think the whole issue is so complex. Totally. And I think basically... Almost everyone is in the same place on this, and it's just really a, the question is where does your instinct lie, really? Yeah, I know and I mean. think that's that's kind of you know in the absence of real technical knowledge, which almost no one has. Like, just, I'm just, it's just yeah, interesting yeah. to hear what people how their intuition are, you know, on it. It's funny because all this stuff is so abstract in so many ways, right? It's like I'm sure we, like, I'm sure we've both heard a record that sampled something and been like, God, that's used it in such a you know, a smart a cool way, way. Or, or, or a respectful way, right? I mean, actually, right? the, the um, Doja Cat single, which is out at the moment, which is fucking enormous, uses, you know... Yeah, Paint the Town Road. Walk, yeah, and it's like, I, I think that's a great tune, you know, and it really does something yeah. different with that sample. A hundred percent. Even though it's just the sample, like, it's just a, a one-bar loop. Of the yeah. It's like, but it, it does sound cool. But this is, this is the thing. It's like, you know, and then I'm sure we both occasionally, like, listen to, I don't know, Radio 1 on a Friday night and just hear... You know, a really, in our opinion, well, certainly my opinion, like just shit house record that is just lifting another house record from the nineties wholesale. But it's the same process, no right? Like, those, let's be honest. No, no, God, I know. But it's like this. This is it. But this is where it becomes abstract, right? Because we both, it's the art and pornography thing, right? Like we both clearly have an idea of where we stand and what's good and what's not. But it is, it's the same process. It's the same legal mechanisms or whatever. Yeah, totally. So I was going to ask you about brands in music. I had a conversation with uh, Sean Ronaldo um, a few weeks ago. Yeah, I, uh, I listened actually. Yeah, yeah so there's a, a couple of questions I wanted to, um, well, that I put to him that I wanted to put to you. So first of all, the one the one about brands. Like, So you've done a fair bit of work with brands, I believe, over the course of your career in music. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, do you mean, do you mean personally or in a local action capacity? I mean, I would, we, Personally, yeah, I've not, I've not done enormous amounts. No, bits, bits and pieces, um, though, right? But I've done bits and pieces for like, yeah, RBMA or or whatever, Converse. So, what are your, what are your intuitions there on the, um, you know, the the, the influence, um, good or bad, 
or neutral? Yeah, it's a tough one. I, yeah, I don't, I used to, I used to not really care. Like I, I used to be like, I mean, like, there's obviously brands I wouldn't work with, but I used to generally not really care. And my thing was just like, you know, I think I squared it in my head that I was like, look, I'm essentially an underpaid music writer <laughs> or a music freelancer or whatever. If Converse are going to pay me X to chair a panel, then great, I'm going to do it. I, for the record, I find chairing panels one of the least <laughs> enjoyable jobs in music. Like I don't, I don't really understand their prevalence at festivals and stuff because I just actually don't think people get a huge amount out of them. I like, I like, um, you know, I like the sort of person-to-person live interview format, but I just think when you put six people on a panel and give them 45 minutes, it's just impossible to get into the weeds. Mm. But that's a, you know, that's a, that's, that's by the by. Um, yeah, I, I used to not really care. I think I've become more, a little more sensitive to it lately. I actually had a really, um, really inspiring conversation actually with, with um, I don't know if you know this label, Sorry Records in New York. It's two guys that run it called Nick Boyd and Tony G. Mm-hmm. Um, both become like, I've, I was in New York, I've actually been in New York quite a lot the last couple of years and they've become really good friends. But I was chatting to them about it and they they actually said when they started, they they put down a list of brands they wouldn't work with, including Boiler Room. Okay. Um, and the minute Boiler Room came knocking, they I think they gave them a rate that they would have to be paid to do a Boiler Room, which Boiler Room wouldn't match. Right. And I've never really thought about that stuff too much. You know, we've done three local action boiler rooms and I've actually not, I've never found the process particularly rewarding or enjoyable. Um, I think I just did it because it was part of the mechanism. It's part of the whole ecosystem. And it's like, well, it's a boiler room offer. You just do it. And I never got paid for curating those boiler rooms. I've DJed free boiler rooms and never been paid. And I, I never questioned it. I just never questioned it at the time. Um, the same way I never really questioned, I don't know, working with a a resident advisor, right? Or 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 a company of that size. And I think the fact that people are having, let's say, more um more transparent, open conversations about this stuff and about being rewarded for their work is a positive thing. Because I never really questioned it until my mid-30s, which um, I think maybe speaks to this whole machine we all we all find ourselves in and, and don't question enough anyway, but you know, I feel pretty stupid, actually, looking back and never having questions doing all this work for free mm. for big VC-backed companies. Right. It's definitely something I'm more diligent about now. Like the last, you know, five years especially, I've been much more comfortable putting together a figure in my head if something's, you know, that I need for something or just saying outright no to stuff. Yeah, it's a slightly different question, isn't it? Because, I mean, once you do think of a figure, then that sort of brings its own questions, right? It does. But I think there's a clarity to it, right? Like I think, and you know, I've definitely been there with artists I've managed where we've had like a pretty naff brand come in and ask them to do a campaign or mm. something. And, and I think there is, an, there is a nice clarity of having that and a nice finality, I guess, of having that conversation. It's like, well, how much would they need to pay you yeah. to do this? And if they can say, I will do it for this, then it's like, well, we don't, we don't accept a penny less. And... I think that's probably a, a, a healthier way to approach them because these brands should be putting money into the underground if they want that credibility, right? Like, it's not specifically about Boiler Room, but they're an obvious, you know, <laughs> subject here. Like, I do feel, I feel, I feel, I feel foolish for having done free Boiler Rooms and never been paid. Yeah, it's funny that, isn't and it? Because local, local action didn't get much out of them, right? Like, Do you not think? No, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think local action's brand awareness, you know, I, I don't think our, our share price, you know, 
jumped at all based on doing some boiler room events. Yeah. And, and I think that's the case with 99% of boiler rooms. So I, I mentioned that I've been reading books recently and one of the books that I've read, I won't yeah. mention the name of, but there's a, there's a notable passage, which is a fairly brutal takedown <laughs> of boiler room. And, you know, there has been, I think, a chapter and verse written about the, the um, slightly dodgy business practices. And I mean, I think some of it's in, informed by, you know, the identity of certain people who work there. But I, right, but sure, I think, yeah. And I, I try not to, I try not to focus on that stuff actually, right. because I, I, I think it's a little bit of red herring sometimes. Sure. I mean, but reading that, I, you know, I did, I reflected on the volumes that we've done and I was, and, and obviously there's the kind of, you know, the, the, the cliche of like, well, do this work and you'll get exposure. And it, and I guess my, my intu my immediate intuition on, on thinking about it is like, what, what have we got out of it was that Boiler Room was one of the few platforms that really could say that with some justification. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. And that's a bit uncomfortable knowing what we now know um, about some of the stuff that went on there. And, you know, well, I mean, I've got my own, you know, uh, views on, on, the, on, on the various staff members in, in question, but just in terms of like the effect, the effect that it had on our business and the effect that it had on some of our artists too, and actually myself personally as an artist, I feel a little bit ambivalent about it, put it that way. And I'm slightly reluctant. Right, that was to, what I was um, going to ask you, actually. Yeah. I was really curious. Do you, because I'm guessing you've done boiler rooms as an artist and in a hot flush capacity, yes, right? Yes. Do you feel, do you feel like your stock significantly rose in like either sense? Either you doing it as scuba or like a hot flush curated one? Yeah. I mean, this is like, so this is literally something last night I read this passage and was thinking about it. I think, well, my, in, my initial instinct was to say well yeah it probably was worthwhile and maybe mm. but then but then you know like digging a little bit deeper like what specifically do i think was added and i'm drawing less of a well there's there's a bit more of a blank being drawn when i when i think about it like that and maybe it was more of a sort of um a peripheral thing to 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 profile i had at the time you know yeah, I don't know. It, it's difficult to put it to pin down, but but I do think that like in in comparison to, I mean, I can think of a lot of unpaid things that I've done which were definitely completely worthless. Like you know, hundred percent. Right, yeah. And boiler room, I suppose, is a little bit more. Like I said, a little bit more. I feel a little bit more, more ambivalent about it. I suppose. Well, they have the platform, right? Like, like I. I mean, I, they did build something really significant. I think is the is the reality. Yeah, they did. And I think for better or worse, they have changed. I mean, you, you've made this point in the way I think people engage with dance music as a, a dancer or a viewer or whatever it is now. But like, you know, they, they have made huge, significant, you know, they've made a huge, significant impact on the way dance music and DJ culture is consumed. Yeah. Like, you can't really doubt the scale of what they do. And it's funny, I'm actually very pro. And I, 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 I think sometimes the way people talk about the whole, like, you know, always get paid for what you're worth. Da, 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 I'm... I'm generally pro doing stuff for free if it's fulfilling and good, right? Like I think... Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. It's something I come back to a lot. I think something I come back to a lot when we talk about like the state of quote-unquote music journalism, like, you know, whenever we're talking about like the Fact Accelerator 2009-ish era compared to now. Like, no one... In, no, like, people were always being badly paid, but like, so many people were contributing to fact for free and it was a bit of a sticking point with me when I actually became editor the, the sort of 
demand, not demand, but like the big request I made from like Vinyl Factory was like, I want everyone to be paid for every article we managed to do that. But I think that people, I constantly have conversations with people where they really kind of eulogize the sort of blog era um, of that, that period. And, and I do too, but that was all just people doing stuff for free and collaborating with people without any idea of business or finance in the room. And I think, I think you should never lose that spirit because a lot of the best stuff just comes from people doing stuff for the love, right? But yeah, I think when it comes to, I guess, I guess the, the, where I've probably been foolish in the past is I've not really made that distinction mm. um, between doing stuff with like, well, I guess the biggest, the, the, the sort of trick that like a, intentionally or not, like a boiler room or an RA plays, they, they'll say they're not a brand show. Right. But when you have whatever, three million Instagram followers, <laughs> you know, you kind of are a brand, right? Like I, I haven't checked the numbers, but I'm sure. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, Boiler Room have bigger social numbers than, I don't know, I was going to say Bacardi, maybe not Bacardi. You get my point. I mean, certainly the 99% of the people that play on there. Yes. So. Yeah, it's a tricky one though. I mean, I think I think the brands and music thing, it, it just depends on, you know, I, I know people that outright turn will turn down pretty much everything and, and that's just where their morals lie. I think I know where mine lie at this point. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you're Peggy Goo's label manager, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to ask the question about hits and bangers or the comparative lack of hits. And obviously Peggy Goo is notable for having a genuine hit record this year. Mm-hmm. Of I, I was trying to think about what the previous equivalent dance hit was, and I couldn't really think of one. Uh, of the last few years, something that's been that ubiquitous. Latch, maybe. But that's going back a long time. I know it really is. Yeah. But I'm, I'm. Oh, maybe like the um, the MK Morgan Guys right. record. Yeah. Okay. That would have been a massive one. But, but you're right. But I'm they're struggling few to think and far of many. Between. Yeah, they really yeah. are. Yeah. So, okay. Let me. So, I want to ask you about. I mean, I've got to ask you about obviously working with Peggy Goo. But like, yeah. let me think about. I mean, I've got a sort of theory that. You know, music sort of declined in quality decade on decade for quite a few decades now. Um, do you agree that the 2010s were quite bad for music? As a, I mean, is that is that just a, a ridiculous statement or is it something that you... I mean, I, I, there was definitely periods that I found incredibly uninspiring for dance music um, in that decade. Mm. I mean, I, I think, look, this stuff's always cyclical, but... I think about it a lot. It's thing I think about a lot in terms of like local action, actually. And I'm like, where do we sit as a label? Like, who are our peers? Who are our contemporaries? And there's points where I can just, you know, look around and see a bunch of adjacent labels and artists that I think are doing cool stuff and be like, yeah, like I think the scene or this amorphous abstract idea of the scene or whatever, like is in good shape. And there's labels that I feel really comfortable um, sitting alongside and, and trends that I'm happy to be like, you know, associated with. And then there's other periods. And I think a lot of the 2010s was like a big one for me where I just, I just hated the majority of um, dance music I was hearing in clubs. Mm. I think that like when the post-dubstep thing started to die out a little bit and, and I can only really speak from like a, a London perspective here, I guess, or at least a UK perspective, but like there was just a very prevalent like house sound um, in London clubs around then that I really wasn't into. Um, and that was followed by like the whole deconstructed club stuff, which I left me bar maybe like two artists left me, you know, 
I, I was like kind of bemused at how big some of that stuff got. <laughs> um, <laughs> Absolutely. But you know, yeah, I, I was, I was a full on, you know, fully paid up hater of a lot of that stuff. Um, but I think I've always been, I think I've always been quite good at like finding, even if it's like little like micro scenes that, that have been like wells of inspiration, like, in the mid 2010s, I thought the stuff that was going on with like Boxed and all the music adjacent to that was like really inspiring. That's, that's probably the most inspired like I've been. Uh, that's probably the last time I was like going to certain club nights like every other week and just mm. coming away being like, God, like I've just heard so much good music for the first time. I'm not sure I've quite had an era like that since, but you know, I also. I was, it's a fight, it has nothing to do with local action, but I was also just running in the mid 2010s. It was just an extra income stream, really. But like me and my friends were like running like a hip hop and R&B night in London that was, we was pretty successful for a few years. We were, we were like paying to pretty much the same venue, but it was like capacity every Friday. And I was just finding so much inspiration in the mid 2010s from like the kind of like bloggy era of rap music that period where like people had started doing free mixtapes but hadn't really like clocked on streaming yet. And I go back to that stuff now and I'm just like, the amount of ideas in some of those records is like just phenomenal. Sorry, do you mean the mid-2000s? Oh, did you say mid, you said mid-2010s, right? I, I, I was talking about the 2010s, yeah. But do you... Yeah, yeah, no, I'm talking about the 2010s. Yeah, yeah, Okay. <laughs> Wait, sorry. Yeah, 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 mid-2010s, like 2012, 13. So what kind of, of hip-hop are you talking about there? Um... A lot of the stuff that was like, let me think, like the era where there was like, there was a lot of like people like Tanache were coming right. through in R&B, okay. people like, who like Tanache, like um, Rome Fortune, Just a lot of like bloggy free mixtape era, okay. like that era of Future and Gucci Mane, stuff like right. that. Like okay, Ex-Nuga. yeah, that makes sense, yeah. I was just finding, I think I've always been good at when I'm bored of dance music, just finding inspiration elsewhere, mm. Yeah, which is probably not, probably not answering the question. I, I found the 2010s tough. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll take <laughs> I found that. periods of the 2010s really tough. <laughs> I'll take that as a lukewarm agreement. Just in terms of the prevalent trends, yeah. the prevalent trends in dance music, a lot of them I just really didn't vibe with. Okay, okay. So, so, and then that that was a kind of peripheral question to the main one, which is that how do you do? How do you explain the lack of uh, anthems, for want of a better term, right? Yeah, I don't know. The title, the title of the title of Sean's essay was "Too Many Bangers, Not Enough Anthems," or something along those lines. Yeah, it's funny. I'm going to reference Phil again, but I was on a I was on a Skype with him recently, and he just said, "You realise no record has sounded as big as Girl Unit What since Girl Unit What." <laughs> and um, I think, on an underground perspective, at least, he's he's right. I think I think it's it's probably an obvious answer, but I just think those kind of tracks aren't given the same amount of time to. Um, just build in the underground, right? Like dub play culture doesn't really exist anymore. Right. Um, and that, that era was probably the last time where we had that, you know, that kind of word of mouth thing where people would hear, go, you know, what? Or like, I don't know, the James Blake remix of Untold in the club for the first time. Like I remember when Untold started playing Anaconda and people were just talking, and it's slightly early in that, but like people were just talking about this record, like trying to describe it. And then you'd hear it in, in Plastic People and you'd be like, oh, this is the Untold record. And we just don't, and I, I, don't, think it's, I don't think it's like necessarily a negative, you know, taking the face value, but just stuff moves so fast now, but also things are released so fast now. Right. You know, tracks are finished on people's hard drives and then they're on Bandcamp the next day. 
And that's all well and good, but I think it's very, very hard for a track to have that kind of word of mouth build through DJ sets at this point. And I think when we look at a lot of those anthems we're talking about, that was how they built, right? Yes. I mean, that's true. Um, I think, I mean, that's definitely true for sort of quote-unquote underground tunes coming through to be big. But I think the same is true for commercial house records. Yeah. I think, but I feel like that even happened with something like Latch or that that MK Morgan Geist record. I feel like those were... I remember having like a real, because I remember Latch was just on Disclosure, Disclosure SoundCloud. And I remember going to that RBMA Culture Clash event. And like I went to the bathroom and there was a kid humming Latch at the like urinal. Mm. And I was just like, God, this record is just like, <laughs> you know, that's probably before it had even like peaked in the charts. But I just remember being like, God, this is like building into this like cultural force. And it's like, I think those, those big records in that era still had that kind of word of mouth thing. And I don't, yeah, I think there's something I don't in think that. that yeah, happens now. yeah, I think I think maybe you're right. I mean, it kind of happened with the Peggy record. It kind of happened with the new Peggy record that she was playing it in her sets for a while, and it was funny. We were getting like licensing requests before it had even come out, right? And we didn't even put it out. It's on XL, but I think people thought it was going to be on Kudu, and I was getting like A and R's from majors being like, "Can we talk about a license deal for this record?" It's like it's not even out. You've just seen her play it on an Instagram story. Um, which in itself is some um, illustrative. Right, yeah, yeah. The time's right. So yeah, tell me about working with Peggy. How did you first um, link up with her? Yeah, I think it, so I, I think it came through XL. Um, it, it actually came through a bit, of a bit of a funny period where it was, it, was the second, it was the second lockdown. So it was that really rough winter where I think the, the novelties of the pandemic had like firmly, firmly worn off for everyone. And I was actually, I was actually considering like packing the whole thing in because it was where, you know, I was really, really struggling financially. And I was actually applying, I applied for like a part-time job at the DWP, which I didn't get, which, um, yeah, was, (laughs) was quite a humbling humbling (laughs) process actually. (laughs) As a, as a former civil servant myself, I, yeah, I can, I can feel your pain there. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I was, I was in a bit of a rough patch and then I actually got, um, yeah, um, it was actually Will from XL, Will Aston, put me in touch. It was just like, look, like it's a bit of a random one, but what's your capacity like at the moment? And I was like, well, it's pretty, yeah, there's a lot of it. <laughs> and um, he was like, well, we've just signed Peggy. And um, she wants to keep running her label and she needs a label manager. And we had a chat. We thought you'd be really good at it. Do you mind if I introduce you? Um, and it moved pretty quick. We had, we had a Skype like resume, I think, like the next day started like a trial period but then I think where it where where it went very well very quickly was that was when she was about to release um Nabby and I go the two singles she did two summers ago she was very honest about it. she was just like look like are you at the level where you can like project manage these for me so coming through the label I was like yeah and so it, it instantly just went from that to like actually like pming two of her records which was great I mean it was a really it was a big learning curve um, but you know, really good process. And then we just yeah, well, we, okay, from let there. me yeah, to tell me about that. Like, what were the differences there? What we what did you learn? Just the scale, the the scale. It, 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 to be honest, I say learning curve. I didn't learn a huge amount. It was knowledge I already had, but it was kind of having the ability to put it into process on a much more global scale. Right. You know, the difference be you know the difference obviously being you know 
being able to hit up someone at Apple or whatever with a new, whatever, you know, underground dance record and then a Peggy Goo record. It's like you suddenly get like the global team on a Zoom the next day. So I found it really rewarding actually kind of being able to take a lot of like the practices I'd learned, but being like, wow, I can really apply these on like a global level now. Um, I found the whole process really rewarding. And I, I find working with her really rewarding actually. It's actually quite nice having, because the label sits in such a different sphere to local action, it's actually been a really nice um, process in terms of working with like, you know, someone like an Ed DMX or a Maurice Fulton, like artists I really, really like, but local action I'm sure is not on their radar and mm. it probably wouldn't even make sense to do a record if it was. But it's actually been really nice being able to work with like super credible people in a slightly different sphere. Yeah. And actually with slightly different aims in mind as well. Um, you know, like we've never really targeted like Beatport, for instance, with local action. We have conversations with them, but it's just never been a big revenue driver for us. Mm. So it's actually been a nice way of like learning how to market dance music in a slightly different sphere. But, you know, still a credible sphere. Like, there's nothing on that label I don't like. I mean, the thing about Peggy, which I think maybe sometimes people don't give her this credit because of just how massive she, she is now, is she has really fucking good taste. Right. Like, she's always championed, like, really good artists. Even if you look at her gigs, like, she puts really good people on support slots. And, you know, sometimes she'll just WhatsApp me and, like, nerd out about, like, a random like rush hour record or a Mike Savito mix or whatever. Mm. So it's actually, it's, it's been a really nice process actually. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned the term credibility there and well, that, that, that always gets my sort of senses twitching with regards to, you know, what is considered to be credible and particularly in the, in the, in the press and with industry gatekeepers, shall we say. Yeah, um, yeah, and Beatport is something which is it's, it's really interesting because obviously Beatport is still a fucking huge platform mm. and really you know makes a lot of money for certain labels um, but is seen as being extraordinarily uncool I think within within yeah. the sort of commentariat and when I have conversations with people at Beatport maybe I'm just speaking to the the right people but they seem to generally have pretty cool taste no I mean I, I have had unambiguously great relationships with basically everyone who works at Beatport. Yeah. And I think that it's just got this, um, I don't know, I don't really know. I don't think, I don't think Beatport's ever been cool. I think it's always sort of been laboring under this. I don't know. I, I mean, it's something which I, which I kind of detect. You know, when I was going back to what I was saying about how the, uh, the outlook of music writers is very, very narrow. And, um, you know, largely speaking comes from a, a, a very set sort of socioeconomic and, and political outlook. And this seems to like, for whatever reasons, this seems to have deemed people as, as, as not, not something which is worth the time of day. I don't really know where that originally came from. But, I, but no, I, I fully agree. And actually, like, trying to not go back to the music right stuff too much. But like, one of the reasons I really got sick of this world was, was this idea that like, this idea of the underground was, it was just developing such a like homogenous taste. Yeah. And like really unadventurous taste. I mean, yes. Look, I don't, I don't think you should take too much stock in like comment sections, but I remember like kind of going back to a lot of like the hip hop I was actually listening to in like the early 2010s, which I think was like super interesting. And I think that point is proved by people like Machine Drum, like going into that world and making really interesting music with people like Tanash and Rochelle Jordan and Dawn Richard. Mm. Um, whenever we cover that stuff on fact, people would be like, this isn't music. <laughs> and it's like, 
Yeah. And you'd be like, but, but what is in your taste? Like, <laughs> you know, Shed Records? I love Shed. Like, I'm not saying that to dismiss, but like these people have such narrow taste. And I don't know if it trickled up or trickled down, but like, I mean, that, 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 um, section of the music media, generally speaking, has really narrow taste. Yeah, I totally agree. Okay, yeah, so let's not go back into that no. um, horrible <laughs> area. Um, last, um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, a last one from the list of questions that came out of, or the list of stuff that I talked about with Sean. Um, local scenes don't matter anymore. True or false? I think that's false. Um, and I may be... I, I think I can say that with quite a lot of confidence having spent a lot of time in New York the last couple of years. Mm, okay, yeah. And from what I understand from speaking to friends there, I know I've got a lot of friends there who feel a little like their scene has suffered in the last couple of years from DJs touring again. Right. Um, and New York clubs booking policies leaning more heavily into, you know, European acts when they're on tour, UK acts when they're on tour, whatever. But... um. I can't tell you what a inspiring, like vibrant, like scene I found New York to be going recently. Um, and it's funny because I, when I went the first couple of times I went to New York, which would have been like the early to mid 2010s, I really found it a struggle, like struggled to find good venues. I had mates there and stuff, but it just didn't feel like a, a scene that it just wasn't a scene that grabbed me. Um, but I was there three times last year and just going to like great parties and seeing great DJs, great local DJs that I'd never heard of before, like every other night. Mm. And I found the whole thing so vibrant. And I actually have, I have a bit of a theory as to why local scenes still exist, but probably don't exist the same way in, let's say, a London or Berlin. Um, or even, you know, I think we can expand it to the UK and Europe, maybe. Mm. Um, well, actually, no, I, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, let's go with like, big, you know, obvious dance music cities because I'm in Manchester a lot and they have a great scene there. But I have a bit of a theory where if you're like a, if you're a new DJ, new producer, whatever, in, you know, London or Berlin, let's say, and you suddenly have a couple of, you know, records that do well, you get signed to like Ninja Tune or whatever, right? Your next record streams really well. You're just on that European festival touring circuit so hard, so quick. And I think this situation we're in now where a lot of people, I think, A, people get pulled from their local scenes really quickly um, and just become an, like, you know, a DJ who only plays their home city, let's say, whatever, twice a year. I mean, that's, I mean, you know what, that's, that's actually the crux of it. I think when, when key DJs in a scene can only play that city a couple of times a year, and those big DJs get pulled out of that, it becomes really hard for a scene to grow. And I think my, my theory, which I'm not 100% on, but I think there is something in it, and I think why I found New York so vibrant is like, even those bigger New York DJs, like it's only a few of them that are doing festivals. You know, the festival circuit is so closed off. You know, it's so beholden, well, it's, it's basically owned by like, or it's, it's, it's completely beholden to three different agencies in, in America. And... You know, a lot of these DJs who are popping in New York, like heroes in the scene, like playing every weekend, they're just not on that festival treadmill at all. So they actually get to develop their craft and their reputation in their own city and become these kind of local heroes. And you get, you get the same in Manchester, like someone like Tom Boogism's treated like a god in Manchester. And 
like he maybe I, I barely ever see him play festivals. Yeah, I think he turns a lot of them down. But I think local scenes can still grow and they can still thrive. But I think the kind of festival industrial complex and everything that comes with that and everything that's associated with that makes it very hard for it to happen in certain territories. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like the kind of yeah, the spectre of the festival circuit kind of looms large over everything. I think at this point, massively. And the way and the way agencies interact with it as well. Yeah, totally. And I think the effect that it's had. Well, I mean, lots of things have had negative effects on the infrastructure, the ecosystem of small labels. But that's got to be one, right? In terms of like, the, I, th- I think it's a huge one. Yeah, I think it's a huge one actually. Yeah, just in terms of like the, the expectations of the audience and you know the um the availability of the audience financially, you know, because if you're spending all your money on a two hundred and fifty quid festival ticket you know this is it i mean we i think you know look t- tickets can be i think we all know tickets right now or um you know a tr- tricky little puppy but like we hadn't we we threw like a label night at mot in spring with no festival competition in march and sold it out comfortably like we could have we could have probably done five six hundred tickets if we'd wanted to for it and then we did same venue two weeks ago i would say a lineup like pretty similar, exact same costs, like like lineup of equal, I would say, ticket power. And it was good. We, we, it was busy in the end, but we really struggled mm. to do those tickets. And I get it, right? Because festivals are, you know, it's expensive. Yeah. And I, I kind of find it incredible how many young people go to them because I feel like, I don't know if I would have gone spent 75 quid or whatever for field day when I was 19. No. Plus everything that comes with sure. it. Sure. I mean, I suppose it's, 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 I mean, it's just everyone does, then you have to do it. Yeah. Right? It's the kind of relative, um, <laughs> relative poverty. You know, if you're not, if you're not going to field day, then who are you really <laughs> in your peer group? Yeah. And a lot of them aren't good. Like there's a, there's a real. No, most of them. But yeah. Right. No. Yeah. The vast majority of festivals aren't good. And I actually don't think a lot of festivals put any care into making them good experiences. Like, it's just all about the lineup and digital ads, I guess. It's like, why it makes such a difference when you actually go to one that is good? Because you're like, God, like, this is actually done with some degree of, like, the consumer's, you know, comfort in mind. But they're rare. They're very rare. Yeah. Totally, man. Well, listen, this has been great. I was going to say we've gone we've gone quite long, haven't we? Oh uh, no, we're we're still within the um <laughs> within the within the within the bounds yeah, right. within the bounds. Yeah, I forgot we started late. Give me some of your favourite menu uh, menus. Give me some of your favourite memories from running a label. God, um, first time we had an artist on Sonar. I've actually I've actually had two with Sonar because Sonar was kind of like I say when I went when I went to sort of university in Aberdeen, I had my house in techno education, like the people that I kind of got that from were like Sonar Lifers and they just went every year. Mm. So I started going with them and then I went, I went every year from, God knows, I want to say like 2007 to about 2013. And the first year I ran Local Action, we released T. Williams' um, first record. I heard that on three different Sonar sets that year and that was pretty mind-blowing. But then I made a pledge that I wouldn't go back to Sonar until I had an artist play and then we had Dawn play, I think, in 2016, and I went with her. Mm. So I think the label's relationship with Sonar has been a special one for me personally, and I still get like such a buzz if I'm at Sonar and I hear one of our records played. What else? Um, 
a lot of the time, I mean, it's going to sound corny, but a lot of the time it's just like artists that have just become really good friends. Mm. You know, like a lot of my close friends are people who have either released on the label or, you know, have proximity to the label at least. And, you know, I've done some really, you know, I've, I've done some stuff that I never thought I'd end up doing. Like, you know, I went to South by Southwest with Dawn Richard and she did like six shows um, with me and it's like part of her tour party. Like that was like a big thing I never thought I'd do. But like, honestly, it's also just stuff like sharing a studio in the pandemic with Aya and just watching shit movies <laughs> there, you know, and just like hanging out and just like, I've genuinely made like a lot of my best friends running this label. And I think I sort of, whenever I do interviews, I, I bang on about like this idea of community and a label family a lot. And it probably comes across as a little corny, but like that stuff is what I think, you know, if I, if I can't the label tomorrow, like the memories that will really stay with me are just like, well, they'll stay with me because they're still my mates, yeah. you know, it's the friends I've made along the way. Yeah, totally. And it's, it's also, you know what, as well, it's on that note, sorry, it's um, something that I really take for granted, I think we all do as well, is like kind of being part of this unspoken, like international, like music family, mm-hmm. I think is really special. Knowing that I could go to Paris on a whim and like DM someone, you know, and probably <laughs> go get dinner or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like it sounds, it sounds silly, but a lot of people can't do yeah. that. I really struggled with that during the pandemic. I knew I'd see all my UK friends again, but I was like, God, when am I next going to see my mates from Barcelona or Paris or Montreal or whatever? I think, I think that's the main, that, that's the best thing I've got out of all of that is kind of having access to this weird, like, guild, I guess, where you can just go, yeah. We've, we've you know, both of us, like, I'm sure we've just made so many different mates in so many different countries and you become part of this, like, weird unspoken yeah it's like the, the freemasonry of music right yeah exactly exactly i was gonna say the less problematic freemasonry but you know can't, can't speak <laughs> well, yeah, maybe maybe or maybe not yeah maybe not but it's easy it's easy to say that for granted i think absolutely absolutely well listen thomas it's been great thanks for your time man yeah man pleasure really really enjoyed it yeah that was tom lee What an interesting conversation that was, covering lots of the stuff that we have been covering in recent weeks, but with a slightly different take on it, of course. And as I mentioned at the top, he's a man of many talents and a lot of experience, and that really shone through, I think, in the conversation this week. So yeah, this was the kind of conversation I like having on this show, as you probably know by now, if you're a regular listener. And if you're not, then, well, you know, this is what we do here. This is what we do. Okay, thanks for listening. I mentioned at the top Patreon, also tips oh god i need to stop calling. i'm not going to call them tips i need to come up with something which is better than donations and tips if you want to give us some money <laughs> scubaofficial.io slash support or just check the links in the show notes thank you in advance if you don't want to do that yep leave us a review or a rating follow the spotify playlist and join us in the discord hotflushrecordings.com slash discord is the invite to get you into that discord server and we'd love to see you there all right i'm done oh finally I'm starting a show on Swoo FM this week, which is on FM in Bristol, UK, but obviously will be on the internet as well. So it's on Wednesday nights, first Wednesday of the month, 9pm UK time. And yeah, more info, hit the link in the show notes. All right, I'm done. This has been great. I'll check you same time, same place next week back here for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. 
Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 